Y'all uh, turn over in your Bibles if you have one or if you, if you want to reach in front of you and grab one over to the book of Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, we're going to look at um, just a couple, well, about three or four verses. <clears throat> um, chapter 31, we're going to start looking in verse 31. So Jeremiah 31, 31. Uh, before we get to the scripture, I want to mention a couple of things though, that, I, that I think are, are kind of worth explaining. I told you guys last week that I, on the subject that I preached on last week, I was really excited about it because it was something. To, it was a subject that I generally would not preach on or, or don't preach on a whole lot anyway. And the same thing applies um, this week as well. It's another one of these subjects. I just, for whatever reason, I don't know. I just don't, I just don't touch on it a whole lot. Um, and I've explained this to you before. I know at least um, either at the beginning of Lent or possibly in Advent. I know that I, I think I've explained it probably before that. But I think this other thing is worth mentioning again. Um, about 80% of the stuff that I preach, the scriptures that I preach on, comes from a source called what we call the lectionary. Um, let me kind of explain that to you. <clears throat> As y'all know, the, the Methodist church, along with a lot of other churches, a lot of other denominations, we celebrate the Christian year or the Christian seasons. The Christian year, technically, as far as we're concerned, um, begins in December with Advent. And as y'all know, we have various church seasons throughout the year. We've got Advent, Christmas, uh, Epiphany. We'll have a short, brief moment where there's no name for it called Ordinary Time. Um, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and then we have about five or six months of something that's called Ordinary Time as well. So what this thing called the lectionary does, it is, it's a series of Bible readings, and, and they're kind of universal almost. Um, but it's a series of Bible readings that applies to each Sunday, each, each Sunday coinciding with that particular season. There will generally be a reading from the Old Testament, a reading from the Psalms, like the one that Sandy read this morning, which is Psalm 51, um, a reading from the Gospels, and a reading from uh, the Epistles. The Epistles generally, I think Susan read the Scripture this morning from the Gospel of John, so what that does is each Sunday, each of these scriptures that are chosen kind of coincide with the season that we're going through. And they coincide with uh, uh, similar themes that, that kind of go along with whatever, whatever season that is. So for, so for example, back in Advent, the scriptures a lot of times would apply you know, to looking forward to the coming of Jesus, whether that be the first coming or the second coming. A lot of the uh, topics or themes that you see in Lent, you know, revolve around repentance, for example, self-examination, stuff that we've been talking about. Last week we talked about grace, which of course is a huge theme uh, for, for the Easter season, for, as we look forward to the Easter season. So um, about 80% of the time, that's where I get my scripture from, unless I just feel like God has, left, has, has laid something on my heart, like the whole love like Jesus theme and, you know, preaching throughout the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I think that's something he's put on my heart, for example. Uh, but the vast majority of the time, I pick, from, I pick from these select four or five scriptures each week, and, and I ask God to help me, you know. And, and that's where I get my source scripture from. And there's the primary reason that I do that a lot of times is, is because it forces me to preach stuff that I wouldn't generally preach, if that makes sense to you. Y'all know that I love to preach out of the Gospels. If it was up to me, I'd be going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John every Sunday. I'd be talking about discipleship every Sunday. I'd be talking about acting and thinking and being like Jesus every Sunday. I think y'all probably gleaned that about me so far. So a lot of the times, these scriptures just, they, they force me. They force me to dive deeper into the Bible and deeper into the themes of, of the season. And, and a lot of times preach on subjects and themes that I wouldn't normally preach on, such as the one today. So this is kind of where we land 
We talked about grace last week. Uh, we defined uh, what grace was. We kind of defined grace as simply really the work of God. You know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of ways that people uh, want to explain grace um, and that type of thing. But um, basically what grace is, it's just the work of God. It's the work of God in our lives. It's the work of God in our personal lives. It's the work of God in, in, in the lives of the church as a whole, in the lives of the universal church, in the lives of, of the globe. It is the work of God, period. And uh, we talked about, you know, traditionally how we Methodists, how John Wesley kind of broke down these ideas of grace, this idea of justifying grace, that grace that, that, that God, that work of God in our lives that brings us into a relationship with Him. And we talked about sanctifying grace, that work of God that, that constantly, where God is constantly working throughout our lifetimes, pulling us in His direction, sometimes like me, dragging us in His, in his direction, um, and conforming us to the image of Christ, which is which kind of, you know, what Paul talks about a whole lot. So we talked about grace um, a good bit, and we're going to be hitting on grace a little bit more today as well as we look into Jeremiah. But we're also going to be talking on a theme. Now, here's the theme that I don't talk about a whole lot. I say I just wasted about five minutes to tell you our theme today, our primary theme, is going to be the theme of covenant. The theme of covenant and grace. Um, so what I want you to do as we read initially through these scriptures this morning, as we read through these few scriptures in Jeremiah, and I'm going to read them kind of slow. What I want you to do is I want you to see if you can spot God's grace in these words. I want you to see if you can spot the work of God in this scripture. If you can spot how God is creating in this scripture, how God is working how God is working to create the restoration of humanity. How God is working to create our reconciliation, our justification, that type of thing. See if you can pinpoint some words or, 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 some, or some, some sentences um, that kind of work, look towards that direction where you can definitely see the work of God's grace going on. So starting in verse uh, 31, in chapter 31, and we're just going to go through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. It's the word of God for the people of God. And you don't have to answer me out loud, but let me just throw a couple, couple of questions out there at you. Were you able to spot a little bit of God's grace in those words? Were you able to maybe see how God is working, how God is working to create uh, the restoration of humanity, how he's working in these verses to 
create our reconciliation to God? Were you able to spot God's unwavering love in these verses? Were you able to spot God's unwavering mercy? His unwavering commitment to humanity? Think on that for a few minutes and, uh, and we'll get back to it. But for now, I want to touch on the idea, the theme of covenant, which, uh, which I mentioned there earlier. What is covenant? Covenant is one of those big church words that we like to throw around that not everybody really knows what it means. So y'all know me well enough to know that I'm a word person and I like to define words. I like for myself to have a good understanding of what stuff means and I like for you guys to have a good understanding of what stuff means. So I got a couple definitions of the word covenant. Uh, Merriam-Webster defines covenant as this. Covenant is a usually formal, solemn, and binding agreement. A usual... A, a, usually a formal, solemn, and binding agreement. Dictionary.com defines it similarly as an agreement usually formal between two or more persons to do or to not to do something specified. Very, very interesting to me was the next definition that Dictionary.com gave because they gave us a church definition from a secular source. I thought that was interesting. <clears throat> but they define it finally as this. Ecclesiastically, or ecclesiastical, which of course ecclesiastical means the church, a covenant is a solemn agreement between the members of a church to act together in harmony with the precepts of the gospel. A solemn agreement between the members of a church to act together in harmony with the precepts of the gospel. And we'll touch a little bit more on that uh, in a couple minutes. <clears throat> so without going into an extended Sunday school lesson, we know that... In the Old Testament, this idea of covenant is, is just all over the place. The Old Testament is absolutely saturated with the word covenant and, and the idea of covenant. I think the word covenant appears right, right at about 300 times in the entire uh, Old Testament. We know that God made covenant with people. We know that God made covenants with individuals. God made a covenant with Moses. God made covenant with Abraham. God made covenant... Um, with the people of Israel. God made covenant with David. It's all over the place. The thing about these covenants that we see consistently, consistently, consistently is one thing. God is really good about keeping His word, about keeping His covenants. People, on the other hand, are not. God is excellent at it. We kind of stink at it. And here's what we take home from God making these covenants with us. And also as we look into our scripture today, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. You're not going to find anywhere in scripture where God fails to live up what he promises to do or not to do. People do not. People do not. Strictly from a religious point of view, I want you guys to... Um, Try to think of some of the covenants that you might have made throughout your lifetime. <laughs> Strictly from a religious view. I know we make all kinds of secular covenants all the time. Um, deals, agreements, those types of things. But strictly from a Christian view, from a religious view, what are some of the covenants that you have made with God throughout your lifetime? Maybe it was a personal covenant. God, if you do this, I promise I won't do this anymore. Those types of things. How many of those have I prayed? Uh, but maybe you've made some kind of personal covenant with God. As a church, all of you have made covenants. If you're a member of this church, you have made covenants to the church. And I'm going to point out a couple examples for you. Um, just to remind you, really. 
because I thought this was a great example because that's what these are. These are, these are covenants that we have made to, uh, to God and to our church. And all of us have made them. If you're a member of Brockton United Methodist, you have, you have made these covenants. <clears throat> when you're baptized into the Methodist church, you make a covenant before God. It's called the baptismal covenant. It's right there in your, right there in your hymnal. When you're baptized into the church, if you're, if you're baptized as an infant, your caregivers make a covenant, very, very similar, to, to raise you in, in a certain way. Once you get to a certain age, you recommit yourself to that covenant. You, uh, you, you uh, recommit to that covenant through confirmation. If you're brought into the United Methodist Church in any way, shape, or form as an adult, you say and you agree to the same baptismal covenant. So if you're a member of this church, at some point or another, you've said these words or you have said something very, very similar. Also similarly, similarly, the church as a whole, when a person is baptized or welcomed into the church as a member, also makes a covenant. We make a covenant to that person or those people, and we also make, of course, a covenant to God. And I just want to reread some of this stuff. I know we, we read this every time people are baptized or confirmed or brought into, brought into us as members. But this is what we've all agreed to. All, the, those of us who are members have agreed to this. These, these are covenants that we have made to God and to our church. Everybody, everybody says this. Every, the, the pastor says these words. On behalf of the whole church... Do you renounce spiritual forces of wickedness? Do you reject the evil powers in this world? Do you repent of your sins? Do you accept the freedom and the power that God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you put your whole trust in Him? And do you promise to serve Him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to people of all nations, uh, ages, and races? And of course, you agree to every one of those and you, and you respond, I do. Here's what the church says. Will, will you, church, will you nurture this person or will you nurture these people in Christ's holy church that by your teaching and by your example, they may be guided to accept God's grace for themselves, to profess their faith openly and to lead a Christian life. And of course, as a congregation, we all agree to that. That's the covenant that we make for those who are baptized and for those who are brought into the church. <clears throat> a little further back, you ask that this, uh, this person is asked, as a member of Christ's universal church, will you be loyal to, uh, to the United Methodist Church and do all in your power to strengthen its ministries? As a member of this congregation, will you faithfully participate in its ministries by your prayers, by your presence, by your gifts, by your service? And of course, everybody responds, or the person responds in the affirmative. And we ask the question to the congregation, member of the, members of the household of God, I commend this person or these people to your care and love. Do all in your power to increase your faith, to increase their faith, confirm their hope, and to perfect them in love. And the congregation covenants with that person or with those people to do so, and we covenant with God to do so. Another example of covenant uh, would be our covenant renewal service that we did, uh, I think, the last week of December. All of us went through that, the ones, the ones who were in attendance here at Broxton that day, and we recommitted ourselves. If, if, we, if we said those words, if we honestly and earnestly prayed those words, we recommitted ourselves to our personal growth in God and to our personal um, involvement and, um, and love for God's church. All of us did that. So those are just a couple, a couple of examples. Let me ask you all a question. How many of us have broken those covenants since then? <laughs> You ain't got to raise your hand. 
I will. Y'all don't have to do that. So yeah, you know, we can't, we're not really good at this stuff. The Old Testament, Israel, they weren't really good at that stuff. In 2,000 years since Christ, you know, we're not, we're not good at this stuff either. We're, pretty, we're really pretty awful at, at keeping these covenants. We may have the best of intentions when we make them, but we are still incapable of consistently following through on our promises and our covenants to God. When we look back at the people of Israel and their, and their wishy-washiness in the Old Testament, probably we shouldn't be too hard on them because really, in reality, we're, we're the same way. We're just not good at this stuff. We stink at this stuff. People break their promises. People break their covenants. We talked about that last week. We talked about sin last week. And uh, in this imperfect state that we live in, this state that we were born into, and of course through Christ we have changed hearts, um, but we're still imperfect and we're still incapable. So in our scriptures today, what you see is you see God's grace starting to work. You see His plan beginning to unfold. You see God starting to work that love, starting to work that mercy towards the very, very imperfect people that we are. He tried to make these covenants with these folks and they just couldn't do it. I told you all this last week. God empathizes with us. He knew they couldn't do it. He knew they were incapable. He knows we're incapable. So in our scriptures today, we start to see this plan of His come to fruition. And of course, as we approach Easter, we know that plan was what? That plan was Jesus. That plan was Jesus. Jesus is the new covenant that we read about here today in Jeremiah. You know, we talked last week how we are able to be justified to God, reconciled and brought into a right relationship uh, with God. Not because of our futile and feeble efforts, or not despite them, our, our futile efforts even. Not because of anything that we've done, not because of anything that we haven't done, but simply through faith and faith alone. Jesus is our new covenant. Now, for the author of Jeremiah, that covenant would not have come again to fruition for a very, very, very long time. But we have that today. We have that covenant today. It's here for us. It's here for us in the here. It's in for us, here for us in the now. But besides that, Besides what we discussed last week, besides what we talked about, we talked about this justifying grace, this, this, this faith that all of us have, this, this equality that all of us have before God uh, through nothing but our faith in Christ. What else does this new covenant do for us? What else does this new covenant that uh, the author of Jeremiah here talks about do for us today? Of course we know it justifies us. Of course we know it brings us into a correct and right and able relationship with God. But it also helps us to walk a little more faithfully in the will of God. It helps us to walk a little more faithfully within God's will. Because get this, and if this, it, this, is, this is the coolest thing about these scriptures that, I, that we read today as far as I'm concerned. God has literally made Himself known to us in our hearts. That's what this new covenant does for us. God literally writes Himself on our hearts. Specifically, our scriptures today read this. I will put my law, or I will put my instructions, is another accurate translation of that. 
I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Y'all may remember last week we talked about, when we were talking about sin, I talked about we, are, we just don't have this natural inclination towards God when we're born, that we are born into sin. And uh, that may startle some people uh, who, don't, who don't believe that or who don't think that. Um, if you've ever been taught that, I don't know who taught you, but that, that's completely wrong. Um, that's, this is Christianity 101. We are born dead in sin. Uh, we can't help it. It's just, it's just the state that we are, that we are born when we are uh, brought into this world. And again, I told you last week, we're not talking about good and bad. I'm not talking about good people. I'm not talking about bad people. There's plenty, plenty of folks out there who have zero relationship with God who I'm sure do have a, have a purer heart and do much more good works than I do. And I'm sure there's far more worse people as we like to think of who's bad and who's, who's, who's good. Um, but it's not about that. It's not about good and bad. It's about sin. And we all, we all have this disease, if you will. And that's what it is, really, <laughs> that we're all born into. So what does that have to do with the law or the instructions of God being written on our hearts, Jerry? Well, here's, here's, uh, here's what I want you to do. You can probably remember in, in, your, in your lifetime, maybe some, of, maybe some of you can't. Maybe some of you can't remember this. And if you, if you can't, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. <clears throat> but if you're like me, I'll just use myself for, as an example. Uh, you can probably remember a time in your life when you were more guided. I can certainly remember a time in my life when I was more guided by obsession with myself than I was with any kind of thing remotely resembling an obsession with God or remotely resembling the needs, uh, uh, an, ex an appreciation for the needs of others. Everything revolved around you. Everything revolved around me. Everything revolved around what I needed. Everything revolved around my desires. And yet, yeah, there was a time in my life when that was very much true. I'm sure for most of you, you can probably, if we're all honest, look back to a part, a time in your life when that was mostly true. When we're guided more by ourselves, our obsession with our desires, our needs, our wants, far beyond, far beyond being concerned about the matters of God. At some point, though, we were brought into a relationship with God. And again, maybe some of y'all can't remember this because it's been so long ago. If so, that's awesome. That's great. But something happens when we were brought into this relationship with God. What does our scripture tell us? He literally writes his instructions on our hearts. That's why we have this heart change. That's why we have this heart change. That's why we are, we are reoriented in our minds and in our hearts towards something bigger than us. We are reoriented to something much more important than we are. We're reoriented to the things of God. We're reoriented to God's will. We seek those things. Paul says that we are no longer dead to sin. That doesn't mean we're not going to have desire to sin from time to time. We certainly are. If we're going to fall short. But we're dead to it. We don't have this desire to, to think like this anymore. We don't have the desire to speak, to act, to live in this former state anymore. And that is a direct result of God's will and instructions being written into our hearts and minds. Maybe we're not perfect and we're not going to be perfect. But maybe, just maybe, we are a little bit less selfish. Just a little bit. Maybe we're a little bit more caring. Maybe we are a little bit more giving. Maybe the world doesn't revolve around us as much as it used to. 
Maybe you've taken an incredible leap. And, uh, and you're basically the next Mother Teresa, Lois Clyatt. If so, that's wonderful too. But when we entered into that faith with Christ, God's law is written in our hearts. And we know God. We know Him on an intimate level and we are formed and we continue to be formed if we allow God to do so with us into the image of Christ that, talk, that, uh, that Paul talks about so much. We are formed by that work of God. We are formed by that grace of God. Through the knowledge of God's will, through the knowledge of, 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 of the will of God revealed through Christ. And it's not just this head knowledge, by the way, and I think, I think that needs to be uh, uh, emphasized. You know, I can read the Bible all day and I, I, can, I can... Some of these classes that I have to take drive me up the wall because that's all it is, is, is head knowledge. I can study the Bible, I can study church history all day, but am I being formed by that stuff? Eh, maybe to a small degree, but not really. My head may be, may be being formed to a degree, but my heart, not so much. This is a heart knowledge that we have of the will of God. And it's a gift. It's a gift that is given to us to follow Jesus. We don't have to wonder who God is anymore. We don't have to question that. We don't have to wonder what His will is. God is, and just like we talked about last week, God's, God's gift, this gift that we are given, extends through across all kind of lines. There's, there's equality in the church of Jesus Christ. It extends across economic lines. It extends across racial lines. It extends beyond geographic lines. Everybody who's brought into this relationship with Christ is given this gift, this knowledge of the will of God. So much so that our scripture reads this, No longer will they teach their neighbor, or will they say to one another, Know the Lord, because guess what? They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And where does that begin? Where, where does God's law begin in our hearts? What is the, what is the found... I swear if y'all get this wrong. What is the, what is the foundational law of God that is written into our hearts. Somebody say it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And what? Foundational. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else extends from that. Of course that law is written into our hearts. We all know that. We all know that because we have that relationship with Him. And where does all that stuff lead? Where's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the payoff for all that? What's the payoff for, for, uh, for loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and uh, loving our neighbor as ourselves? What do we get out of that? Because there is a payoff. And I'm not, you know, I don't say we seek God for selfish reasons, but it's just kind of a natural occurrence. There is a payoff for all this stuff, and Paul talks about it. It's called the fruits of the Spirit. Kindness, gentleness, self-control, joy, peace. Those types of things. All of those things which are ultimately of God because that's, what we're, that's what's happening to us. We're being formed in the image of Jesus Christ. I think maybe lastly and perhaps the greatest example of love and mercy and grace is found and emphasized in that final sentence that we read in today. And we talked about this a little last week. And that final sentence reads this, For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. I will forgive their wickedness 
and I will remember their sins no more. Now that's a pretty big statement. That's a pretty big statement and it's even bigger promise. Maybe those words aren't jumping out to you right now. But because of the new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah, because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, because of His resurrection, because of His ascension and that gift that we receive through nothing but faith, God doesn't just forgive our sins. God forgets about them. He forgets about them. I'm not making that up. It's right there. It's not just forgiveness. He acts like it didn't even happen as far as he's concerned. Hey, God, remember when I did this? Nope. Sure don't, Jerry. Sorry. It's like it never happened to God. How cool is that? How cool is that? How graceful is that? How merciful is that? If that doesn't give you chills, I don't know what will. God forgets them entirely. Although we will inevitably continue to fall short, if we, as long as we maintain that faithfulness in Jesus Christ, we are no longer separated from God. And He will do it again and again and again and again. And I know some people, for some reason, I used to be one of these people, um, get a little bit uncomfortable talking about this great grace that God has, this great grace that, that God gives us. It makes us uncomfortable because it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that I've been sitting in a church pew for 30 years and I've got all the righteous piety that the human being can muster. I do all the good works that a human being possibly can do. I, I, I feed the poor. I take care of the homeless. I go to hospitals. I visit the elderly. It doesn't seem fair that I do this. But this dude over here who has the same faith in Christ... Struggles with alcoholism, struggles with drug addiction, struggles, struggles with a bad relationship with their spouse, whatever other atrocious sin you can think of. But they've got that relationship with Christ. And guess what? They get that same fair treatment, that same unfair treatment. It doesn't seem fair to us, but we've got to get over that. Because I don't deserve a grace any more than this dude does. I don't deserve it, but I got it. And so does this guy. Maybe that helps us to love each other a little bit more. Maybe that helps us to be a little bit more gentle with one another, like I said last week. And another thing that happens when we start talking about this great grace, and again, I used to be one of these people too, and, and I've, I've lightened my thoughts on this. <clears throat> another thing that props up or that comes up when we start talking about the incredible grace and love and forgiveness and forgetfulness of God is uh, we, uh, we, want to, we want to say, and for some people do this, some people do do this, and you can certainly see it in their behavior and their actions. We want to use grace a lot of times as an excuse to sin. Well, I'm forgiven. God's going to forgive me anyway. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I, I can go, go pretty much go and live in my life like, like I want to. In all honesty, yeah, you can. You can. You'll, you'll get the get-out-of-hell-free card. You'll, you'll get the reward in the afterlife to some degree. I can't argue with that. But in my opinion, in my opinion, that's not the direction I should be going. That's not the direction I should be being pulled towards. Remember we talked about sanctifying grace last week? And we talked about God's grace coming before us. It's that grace that is constantly present. It's that work of God that's constantly present in our lives. 
and it's pulling us towards Him, or if you're like me, a lot of times it's dragging us towards Him, dragging us towards His will, pulling us towards His will, letting us know how to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, letting us know how to love our neighbor as ourselves, telling us the right thing to do, and that we can make that choice. I can follow that. I can submit to God, or, or I can not. I can go the other way. To me, you know, if, if you've got that right relationship with God, you're being pulled more in that direction, and you're responding and submitting more in that direction. That doesn't mean that I should begrudge my brother or sister over here, unfortunately, or fortunately. Maybe I should love my brother or sister a little bit more. Maybe I should help them in their walk with Jesus. This grace and this mercy that we, that we receive should prompt us towards loving God and people more. Because as we realize more how big God's love is, we should be inclined to live as people who are authentically and visibly loving God and our neighbor. That we are bending to God. That we are submitting to that law that God has so graciously put into our hearts. And that's what happens in the lives of people. And you can see that. You can see that all day. When we realize this, in our lives or, or others' lives, when, when we realize the intense mercy and the intense love of God, I think a lot of us forget that. Maybe we're brought back to it here and there. But when we really come to a full realization of how much God loves us, of how big His mercy is, of how big His grace is, that should prompt us to love Him more. And that's the difference between following rules and becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm not in this to begrudgingly follow a bunch of rules. I am in this because God has loved me so much and allowed me so much, and blessed me, and graced me so much, and I realize that, and I'm being pulled, and I'm being prompted, and I'm to, to fulfill these things, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ because of that love. Not because I have to, not because I'm, I'm being forced to do this stuff, it's because I want to. And that's the difference between being a Christian sometimes and being a disciple. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for the ability to worship together. We thank you so much for our church family. God, we thank you for that covenant that you have made with us that we know you will not break even though we, we fail you so frequently. God, I would pray that you would draw myself and each every, every other person in this room a little closer towards you. I would pray that you would make your presence a little more known to us. Make it a little bit more real to us, maybe. Help us, God, I would pray, to have ears that are a little more open, hearts and minds that are a little more receptive to both receiving and submitting to your perfect and good will. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.